The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 25th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. If you are a guest with us this morning, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of leading us this morning as we read and teach from God's Word. And y'all got quiet real quick. I can't get nine or ten to get quiet like that. I just have to keep talking and talking and talking and waiting. Y'all are so good. That's awesome. As you're getting settled, grab your Bible and make your way to the book of Galatians. We are working our way this spring and summer and probably the fall through the New Testament letter that Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. And this morning, we pick up chapter three. We spent the last few weeks kind of circling around the end of chapter two. And this morning, we're going to pick up in chapter three. So make your way there. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read it. Then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to see what God has for it in us this morning. So Galatians chapter 3, let's start in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord this morning. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let me pray for us and We'll see what God has for us there this morning. Father, we thank you for the rich privilege that we have again of being here this morning, that you woke us up by grace and you've brought us here by grace and you, by your spirit and your word, are working in our hearts this morning, that your grace may reign, that your grace may reign over our heart and over our lives, that it be the thing we are most satisfied by. This morning we ask that you would do that miracle by your spirit in our hearts this morning for your glory, for our great joy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1997, I was living in Nashville, Tennessee, and I became the proud recipient of two second row center concert tickets. In Nashville, that could mean a lot depending upon what's going to happen. It was an important concert at that point because it's a concert that the, my girlfriend at the time had desperately wanted to go to, and I had gotten second row center tickets. It was Fiona Apple and the Wallflowers. Now, some of you can date yourself back to that period. A lot of you can't. I wasn't particularly excited about the concert itself. Wasn't a giant Fiona Apple fan or a giant Wallflower fan, but she was, so that was good. And then those of you who are aware of the Wallflowers, you may know that the lead singer is Bob Dylan's son. And this was Nashville. And twice that year in 1997, Bob Dylan had shown up to Wallflowers concerts. So I had two second row center tickets. A girlfriend that was going to be happy. And I had the chance of being 25 feet away from Bob Dylan because it was Nashville. Of course Bob Dylan's going to show up. And at the time, I was a very young Christian I had probably only been saved a year, maybe even a little less. I loved Jesus. I know that. I knew that. I was enjoying my life, the freedom that God had given me through Christ. 
but my mind, my heart, my soul, that whole reality of that period in my life was a lot like being wet cement. You're easily moldable, easily malleable, and you're going to start kind of hardening into a level of conviction over a period of time. And the tribe that I was kind of running with, the crew that I was around and the church that I was going to is I would go through different questions and go through different seasons of struggle or doubt, even assurance of whether or not I really was saved and God really did love me, which is, happens as, you, as you're trying to work all this stuff out. They began to tell me that those questions and some of those doubts were real evidence that there was something else God wanted to do in my life, something else that I needed, something else that would help me to not only be an effective follower of Christ in my life, but it would eradicate the doubts that I had as to whether or not I was truly forgiven. And I was like, well, how do I get that? That sounds great. And I seem to need that because I'm struggling. And they said, here's what you need to do. You need to go make an appointment with the praying gyms. Serious. The church that I was a part of was a large church. It was a little over 50 years old. And there were these three men who had been a part of the church from day one. All three were named Jim. And they were called the praying gyms. And every, not G-E-M, I know it's like, like Jim and the holograms, no, Jim's, J-I-M, and the praying Jim's. And, and you, what you would do is you would make an appointment to go see the praying Jim's, and they had this prayer room in the church building, and on Thursdays you could make an appointment, and they would be there from 5 o'clock in the afternoon to whenever they decided to go home or fell asleep in the room. I don't know what they would do, but you would make an appointment, and you got to go see the praying Jim's. And so I said, well, if that's what I need to be sure that God loves me, there's something that I'm missing, I need to go see the praying gyms, I'll do it. So I called the church to make an appointment to go see the praying gyms. And lo and behold, the only time available for me to see the praying gyms was the Thursday night of the concert. What's a faithful Christian supposed to do? What would it say about my true love for God if I chose to take my chances to see Bob Dylan instead of going to the praying gyms? What would it say to those around me that I like the chance of seeing Bob Dylan more than, well, all right. So I gave my tickets to my girlfriend's best friend and I went to go see the praying gyms because that was what I needed to do. So I go and see the praying gyms and the praying gyms do what all Christians do to make everything awkward. They made me stand in the middle of the room and they gathered around me and they put their hands on me and they started to pray. Most of the time I knew what they were saying. A lot of the time I had no clue what they were saying. It was a language that was incomprehensible to me. And man, they were praying and they were praying hard. At one point, I think they took a break because one of the gyms overheated. I don't really know. Um, whatever it was that was supposed to happen, I think at that point to me, I remember thinking in my brain, maybe God misfired and it happened to Jim and he had to go sit down. I don't know. I was just standing there, not really sure what I was supposed to be doing or what was supposed to happen, but for me to know that God really did love me and for me to know that I could live an effective life as a follower of him, I was supposed to be with the praying gyms. And after a period of time, maybe someone else was coming in and my time was up, I don't know. They stopped and gym number one looked at me and he said, son, it's normative, I'll never forget this, it's normative for a follower of Christ who has truly believed in Jesus and been saved to have an experience that we have been praying for for you. The fact that we don't see evidence of this in your life leads us to believe that there is still sin in your life that you have not confessed, that you have not repented of, and we're not sure that you could be totally confident that you are indeed saved. You need to go and figure out what it is you're keeping from God, and when you deal with that, you can come back, and we'll see what God's going to do. I had loved Jesus. I knew that. I walked out of that room going, I don't know if I'm actually saved. As I began to tell my friends at the time who told me to see the praying gyms what had happened, they 
agreed with Jim. They said the fact that you haven't gotten rid of those CDs, that you still listen to Jane's Addiction in the car, that you kind of hide that little stash over here, that you still hang out with all of your old friends sometimes, that your mouth still really likes the taste of Guinness, it all could very well be evidence that you really did not believe enough, that you're really not quite saved. And I spent the next few years trying to figure out what the code was I had to crack, what things I had to do, what things I had to get rid of, what ways I had to behave in order to know that God really did love me, that I really was saved, and that I had done all the right things, and that I could be an effective Christian in this life. Like the Galatian churches, my, my once very sincere faith in the simplicity of the gospel was being shaken it was being agitated to the edge of destruction. I, I had started strong. I had believed in Christ for my salvation. Everything seemed right, but now that I need to do something else in order to finish what Jesus had started, did God come halfway and now I've got to go the other half? Did he do his part and now I've got to figure out what my part is? Evidently, to really be saved means I had to become like everybody else over here. I was having my own Galatian experience. I, like the churches in Galatia, Paul said, had had the gospel, had had Christ portrayed vividly, graphically, compellingly before my eyes. Look at verse 1. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The news of his life in my place, his death in my place for my sins, his resurrection as sufficient for victory over Satan's sin and death had been made clear to me. It wasn't some 20-point PowerPoint presentation that I read, that I saw, and I agreed with. It had been proclaimed to me in such a way that I didn't simply believe that the facts were true. I knew for the first time it was true for me. My heart had been captivated by the gospel. The same thing happened there. That's what it means to be captivated by the gospel. It means you don't just agree with the information that it's true, but you realize for the first time that your heart is gripped by the fact it's true for you. The news that God had done everything necessary for me to be made right before his eyes through his son had been proclaimed and I had believed it. It had been sweet. It had captivated my heart. I'd started strong, but something had begun to happen. Same thing happens in the churches in Galatia. Something was afoot. Look what Paul says in verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are, are you now being perfected? Are you now being matured? Are you now being made complete by the flesh? See, he's asking a series of questions and he's asking them in such a way to get underneath what they're believing, what they're wrestling with, what they're struggling with so that as they answer them, they can see the picture that Paul's painting. This is the essence of the letter. I mean, this is the main point. Everything he's gonna go to in the rest of the letter is coming back to this. Their hope, their confidence had drifted away from the simplicity of the gospel that Jesus Christ was indeed sufficient for their completion in life and their completion before God. And they had begun to drift to God had done his part through Jesus. Now, I have to do my part. And the question that Paul is asking is, is the gospel sufficient only to get you in? But to stay in, you've got to do your piece. Is the gospel only sufficient enough to get you in the door? But to stay in, you've got to figure out what you've got to do to keep yourself in God's good graces. Is that what it really is? 
This is what's underneath the entire letter. Oh, foolish Galatians, Paul said. Who has bewitched you? Who has begun to tell you, to whisper to you the lie that grace gets you in, but something else keeps you in? Grace, but. That argument is as old as the garden. It originated with Satan himself. Did God really say? His chief strategy is to get God's people at any point in time to disregard or to distort the simplicity of the gospel. Paul's not against circumcision in itself. Paul's not against the law in itself. I'm not against God doing miraculous work in the lives of his people. I pray that God does miraculous works in the lives of his people and in my life and in my family all the time. But anytime any of those things become ways that you earn your completeness before God, they become damaging to the church. Paul says, who has bewitched you? And he knows And by saying who in the singular, Paul was drawing their attention back to the enemy of their soul. It's not simply the false teachers that have come in and begun to whisper these lies. No, those lies come from the pit of hell. They've bewitched you. The way you enter the Christian life, the simplicity of confidence in the message of the gospel, it's meant to be the same way you mature in the Christian life as well. Maturity, completion, perfection. It's by grace, through faith, worked by the Spirit of God. And it's important to notice, just as we're going through it, just lest we think this is something that happens outside the church, this particular struggle, this particular heresy, if I were dare to say it, that God gets you in through Christ, but you keep yourself in through any number of works or behaviors or obediences, it's a particularly Christian heresy. These were men coming from Jerusalem telling the churches this. The greatest troublemakers for God's people always occur inside the church. And it's when the enemy gets us to disregard or distort the simplicity of the gospel. So what Paul is going to do here, and it's going to take him the rest of chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 4, is he is going to build an extended argument for the sufficiency of the gospel to save you, to change you, to empower you. The simplicity of the gospel is sufficient enough for your salvation and your transformation. And as I was thinking about this part of the letter and thinking about myself and thinking about us and thinking about the church, my prayer for us in the next number of weeks while we go through this is that God would use this part of the book in some sense to counsel to encourage and to correct what's going on in many of our hearts. Let's be honest. There are probably many people who have come in here this morning having their own version of a Galatian experience. You might be wrestling through something very similar to what the churches were now dealing with to maybe what I dealt with back in 1997, that God saved you through Christ, but now to keep you right before his eyes, you've got to do something else. Some book has told you that what it looks like for you to truly be a Christian is believing in Jesus, but real Christians look like this, they do this. Maybe you're wrestling with whether or not God really does love you because you might not look exactly like that, that you believed in Jesus, but there's something else you need to do. Friends, let Paul counsel you here through this letter. Let him help you the way that someone used this book to help me a number of years ago. Paul is going to expose 
the foolishness of thinking that something other than the sheer simplicity of the gospel is needed not only for salvation, but for your maturation, for your completion. And he's going to do it two ways. He's going to argue it from their experience already of the gospel, and he's going to argue it from the scriptures. He's going to say, you should already be able to see from the experience that you have of God's grace that you need nothing other than the gospel. And then he's going to say, the, te- the scriptures have said the same thing all along. And so we're going to start looking at it this morning. So look down at chapter 3. The first thing Paul would want the churches to know, he would want us to know, is that our own experience of God's grace should tell us that we need nothing other than the gospel to not only get us in, but to keep us in all along the way. Look at verse 2. Let me ask you only this, Paul said. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now this, I think, in my opinion, someone else could argue with me, I think this is one of the most condensed definitions by implication of what conversion really is. When you think about what it means to become a Christian, when God does the transforming, converting work of your heart, there is a deep, deep, deep implied definition of that here in verse 2. To be a Christian, Paul says by implication, is to have received God's Spirit. Did you receive God's Spirit by what you did or by hearing the gospel with faith? Did you become a Christian by what you did or by hearing the gospel with faith. To be a Christian, Paul is implying, is to have already received God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. He's convicted you of your sin. He's opened up your eyes. He's given you a new heart. He's given you the faith that you exercise to believe that Jesus is sufficient for you. He's given you a love for God. He's given you a love for other people. He has opened up your eyes and illuminated the Scriptures and helped you see Jesus. His definition by implication is that your conversion is a powerful encounter of God with your heart by which you receive His Spirit. We try to simplify it so much these days and talk about the decisions that you and I make for God. Conversion is not simply a decision that you make, though your decisions are important. One writer said the real conversion is the power of the Holy Spirit entering in and giving you a new heart way deep down as you hear the gospel and just believe it. Paul said, when you heard the gospel with faith, you received God's spirit. You were converted. Converting work happened. So what does it mean then to hear the gospel with faith? It seems important that if that's what we do by which God transforms us by his spirit, what does it mean to hear the gospel with faith? faith. Hearing the gospel with faith is not simply hearing the message of the gospel and believing all the facts about the gospel to be true. It's hearing the gospel truth that you indeed are separated eternally from God because of your sins, but that God in his love and his wisdom has made a way to make you right before him all along without ever compromising any aspect of his holiness or his justice. And the way that he did that was through his son living the life that you were created to live and dying the death that you deserve to die in your place for your sins and raising him from the dead. Paul said, hearing the gospel with faith that the Holy Spirit comes and opens up your eyes and changes you is hearing it not just as true, but true for you. 
that you are indeed separated from God. That apart from His grace at work in you through His Son, you would be separated from Him for eternity. But in His love, He made a way for you to be made right with Him. For you to be justified by Him. And the way that He did that was through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. And when by the grace of God, you believe upon Jesus Christ for your salvation, you, hearing, you are hearing that with faith, believing it to be true for you. But Paul's saying, what he's asking, what he's digging out of the Galatian churches in this letter is, did you receive God's Spirit? Were you converted? Were you saved by anything that you did according to the law? Just look at your own life and your own experience of God's grace. Was it your obedience that caused you by God's grace to receive His Spirit? Did you clean yourself up enough to bring the blessing of God's salvation. See, Paul's implying for them by their own understanding of of what God's done for them, the idea that God loves you and that he's taking you into his family not because of your obedience but because of his grace. The idea that your obedience is what keeps you in his family is going to destroy you. Paul's saying just look at your own experience of God's mercy. Any love for him, any real joyful obedience towards his word is a fruit. It's an evidence that God has loved you first. It's an evidence that while you were still sinners, he sent his son to die for you and his spirit to open up your eyes. Your own experience of God's converting work of your heart by His grace and not anything that you have done is enough to show you that you don't need anything else. That Jesus is sufficient. But not only that, He has more to say. Paul would say in verse 4 that at this point it would be the height of foolishness for you to turn your back on the grace of God now. Did you suffer so many things in vain? if indeed it was in vain. So think back to the days after God did his work by his grace in your heart. Remember me, Paul, I came to the region, I came to Galatia to preach the good news of God's salvation, to preach the good news of the gospel, and they nearly killed me. They stoned Paul within an inch of his life, left him outside the city for dead. He did it that they might be free through confidence in Christ. And the minute they believed that God by his spirit gave them new hearts, they began to live and suffer similar separation from people. Maybe they suffered similar physical persecutions, but they were certainly cut off from family and friends because of their faith in Christ. Paul's saying, you started off so strong, confident in the grace of God. Why are you turning your back on it now? One writer would say, if you believe the wrong things about Jesus, like he gets you in, but you now have to keep yourself in, if you believe the wrong things about Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're sincere, even to the point of suffering. If you believe the wrong things about Jesus, you ultimately believe in vain. And even your suffering will be in vain. Paul said, look at the evidences of his grace in your life. Look at how even in the moment of suffering and persecution for your confidence and for your faith, you didn't waver in your joy in him. Why are you turning your back now? To believe the wrong things about him and to make it all be for vain, for nothing. But then he's going to say one more thing. Look around. Look at your life. 
Look at the evidences of God's grace, not only in your life, but in the lives of the brothers and sisters around you. Right now, God is at work in you by his spirit because you are believing the good news of the gospel. You are relying right now on Christ for your sufficiency and not your own behavior and not your own good works. Just look around at the evidences of his grace. That's what he's getting after in verse 5. Look at what he says. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Think of slow down, though, when you read that. Slow down and read and understand what tense Paul is speaking in. Now, I'm not going to get all grammary and academic here. I'm not good at that stuff, but slow down. Does he who supplies the Spirit, not past tense, that would be supplied, right? It's present tense, right? So does he who is supplying the Spirit to you and works, not worked, but works. So does he who is supplying the Spirit to you and working miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing, not heard, but now hearing with faith? Paul said, look around. Look at your life. Look at the lives of God's people around you. Why is God doing such miraculous things? Why is God moving in such mysterious ways? Why are you guys praying together and God answering those prayers? Why is he showing up in such wonderful supernatural ways? Why are people who could have never in their own been able to forgive and be reconciled together forgiving one another and reconciling one another? Why is God working miraculously amongst you? Is it because you're doing so many good things? Is it because you finally figured out just exactly what it is you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to be to get him to do that? Or are you hearing, not heard, hearing right now today, hearing right now tomorrow, hearing with faith? Are you believing the gospel today that Jesus is sufficient for your completeness, not your obedience? Are you believing the gospel today? Paul says, when you and I believe the gospel today, and we believe the gospel tomorrow, when, as we said last week, we are pressing the gospel into the corners, that's the same thing as hearing with faith, believing the gospel is true for me today. The promises of God are true for me today. When you and I together are believing the gospel today, God is working miraculously in and amongst us by his Holy Spirit. It's not because you finally figured out how to do all the right things. It's not because you're so great. It's not because in your mind you're any better than the person next to you or whoever your mind goes to when you try to encourage yourself into just how good you really are. It's because you're hearing with faith. Look at the evidences of grace in your life. Look at the evidence of the grace of God working through your life. God isn't at work because you've somehow pulled everything together. Paul is saying that would be the height of foolishness to believe that. It wasn't that way in the beginning. You didn't finally get yourself to a certain place where you would be okay enough to earn God's salvation. It doesn't work that way today and tomorrow either. God doesn't continue to mature you and change you and transform you because you've finally done enough things to get yourself in the right place for it. No, from beginning to to end. It's not according to your works, but to the grace of God at work in you and through you. Your own experience testifies to the reality that the gospel isn't simply how you get in, it's how you stay in and how you go on. But that's not it. 
Paul's not going to say your own experience doesn't simply say it. Scripture's been saying it all along. Scripture's been testifying to it all along. Now, we're not going to be able to get through all of chapter 4. We're just going to get through chapter verse 6. So we'll just see how he begins the argument. What Paul does next, I just need you to understand, is an absolute stroke of genius. Chapter 3, verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So is God at work in you because you've done so many good things? Or is God working through you as you are believing the gospel today and believing the gospel tomorrow? And now he's going to give a scriptural example for it, and he goes to Abraham. Just as Abraham, verse 6 says, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. And here's why that's such a brilliant, brilliant move by Paul. These teachers that were coming into the churches from Jerusalem, one of their main lines of argument to the churches for why they needed to not only believe in Jesus, that he got you in, but they needed to be circumcised and follow all the Old Testament Jewish laws and traditions to be right before God. One of their main lines of reasoning was that Abraham was the father of God's people, and we needed to be like Abraham if we were going to truly be like God's people. And they would always go back to Genesis chapter 17, where God would ratify his promise with Abraham through the sign of circumcision. That's why circumcision becomes such a big part of the argument. And we get back there in later chapters. So Paul says, look, here's what we're going to do. You want to bring Abraham into the argument? You want to ground your argument in the Bible on Abraham? Let's do it. Let's take Abe. I'll do Abe. Abe will be my prime witness in my case. And what you'll see is that he agrees with me, not you. You want to go to Genesis 17? I'll take you to Genesis 15. Paul goes back even further. He quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 right there in Galatians 3, 3, or 3, 5, I mean. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to flip back because I want you to see it. I promise I'm watching the clock. But those of you who come to 11 know that really doesn't mean anything to me. We don't have anything behind us, so. I want you to see the argument Paul is building. Abraham is going to be key, not just here in chapter 3, verse 6, but in the rest of the argument. I want you to see how he goes back to this argument from Scripture to say that the Bible testifies to the same thing that you see at work in your life by God's Spirit. So he quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, but I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Go back even further. Because there was something about Abraham in his story that everyone had agreed upon that was part of the foundation for this argument. It starts in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God shows up and he chooses Abram. Now, I can't say anything else more about that. Doesn't say why. Abram hadn't done a certain amount of things. Part of their argument would be he's the father of God's people, father of the Israelites, but God didn't choose him because he was an Israelite. They came from him. He was a Chaldean. He wasn't an Israelite. You can't over-spiritualize this. Genesis chapter 12, God shows up to this man named Abram and starts making promises to him. That's what happens. Look down at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what did Abraham do? Or Abram at this point, verse 4, what did he do? He believed God, and he simply obeyed. God shows up to this Chaldean, starts making promises to him. 
that through him and through his family, all the families on the earth are going to be blessed. And at this point, he had no kids. He was getting older, his wife was getting older, and they had not yet had kids. But they heard God, they believed his promise, and they obeyed. But the promise didn't happen right away. Time went by and years went by. And so you get to chapter 15, where Paul's going to quote verse 6. And you get to a point in Abraham's life where he followed God, he went to the land where God told him, he believed God's promises that through his family, all the families on the earth would be blessed, but he had not yet had a child. So Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me for I continue to be childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And and Abram said, but you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram said, God started the process. God came, God spoke, God promised. I believed and went, but now I've got to finish the deal. Because if all the families on the earth are going to be blessed through me and I have no kids, I've got to figure out how it's going to happen. So the first thing he decides is that all of his goods are going to go to the servant of his house who would be next in line. That's Eleazar. God started it. I've got to finish it because I'm not sure what's going to happen. And God says, hold up, Abraham. Slow it down a little bit. Listen to what God says next to him in chapter 15. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look towards the heavens and number the stars if you're even able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now don't miss the connection, but what's happening in Galatians chapter 3. God had made Abraham a promise. Here in Genesis chapter 15, God vividly portrays, placards, displays the promise that he has made him in the skies before Abraham's eyes. Just like the promise of forgiveness through Christ crucified was portrayed before the eyes of the Galatians. And what did Abraham do? Verse 6 says he believed the Lord. In the face of absolute human improbability, Abram lashed himself to the faithfulness of God and believed the Lord. And God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. This is the key to Paul's argument. This is the key to him saying, look, your own life shows you you don't need anything other than the gospel. You don't need to believe in Jesus and then figure the rest out for yourself. And scripture says the same thing. Abraham, you want to go to Abraham? Abraham believed the Lord in the face of absolutely insurmountable human realities. He believed the promises of God, lashed himself to God's faithfulness, and God reckoned that to him. God counted that to him. God imputed to him righteousness, right standing. He didn't make Abraham righteous. He imputed it to him as though he had always been. You don't need anything else. Here's why that matters. Because these teachers would say it was circumcision. It was obedience to the law. And Paul is saying God reckoned righteousness to Abraham because he believed 14 years before he ever got circumcised. Can't be circumcision. That's 14 years later. It can't be his obedience to the law. That comes 400 years later. He believed and the faithfulness of God to his promises. And God imputed to Abraham, reckoned to Abraham, credited to Abraham 
righteousness. To give you a better picture of what that transaction looks like, have you ever heard of people renting to buy their house? Leasing to buy their house? You ever heard of those agreements? For years, you spend your time renting a house, paying monthly rent. The minute you decide that you're actually going to buy that house, what happens to all those rent payments you made for all those years? They immediately become credited. They immediately become reckoned. They immediately become imputed with a new status. They aren't rent payments. They are treated as though they had always been mortgage payments all along. Paul's saying the whole point of the argument is this. Abraham just believed. He had confidence and faith in God and his faithfulness to his promises. And to that, God imputed to him righteousness, though he has always been righteous before God's eyes. John Stott would, would say that is this, that he himself was accepted as righteous by faith. He wasn't justified because he had done anything to deserve it, or because he had been circumcised, or because he had kept the law, because neither circumcision nor the law had been given yet, but simply because he believed God. Paul is trying to, through these questions, build in them this argument to help them see that you never, ever, ever move on from the simplicity of the grace of God through Christ worked by his Spirit. You never need to add anything else to that to not only get in but to stay in paul's going to say this to churches all the time in romans chapter 5 verse 2 paul's going to say it's through jesus that you and i have obtained access by faith into the grace of god in which we stand and in which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of god he's saying it's because of the grace of god through Christ, that you and I stand before God firm and confident. It's not our own experience. It's not our own accomplishments. It's not our own obedience. It's solely what God has worked for us through Jesus. So that when you and I, like Abraham, are men and women of faith that looks weak and looks feeble and thinks that we have to figure out what we need to do, we stand firm in the confidence of Jesus. We don't need anything else. Friends, the reality of it is our confidence is always under assault. It's why we talk so often around here about our responsibility and our privilege to help remind one another, encourage one another, stir one another up by the reality of God's love for us through His Son. You've got to understand it is Satan's most potent strategy to get God's people to doubt or to distort or to disregard the simplicity of the gospel. Shiny object or shiny salvation syndrome is true for Christians. Yes, I have believed in Christ. My salvation is secure and something jangles over here and we think we have to live this way over here and sacrifice this way over here and do this thing over here to know that God loves us. Something else shines and jangles over here. And we have to think, that's what we do to make sure God loves us. And the simplicity of the gospel is distorted. The simplicity of the gospel becomes doubted. Friends, in the spirit of Paul's letter, let me ask you the question. On what basis do you really believe that God accepts you? Really? Really? On what basis do you really believe that God accepts you? 
Did Jesus get you into the door? And now you've got to prove yourself and your loyalty and your love to God to stay in. Is that how Christianity works? Is that what it means to be a man or a woman with faith? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the greatest preachers of the 20th century, he said that a man or a woman of faith is someone who is no longer looking at himself or to himself. I love this. No longer looking at himself or to himself or even at what he once was or what he or she is now. We do not look even at what we hope to be as a result of our effort. A man or a woman of faith looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and rests on that alone. And here's what that looks like, Lloyd-Jones says. You and I stop saying, ah, yes, I used to commit these terrible sins, but now I do this or that. Did you hear what he said? A man or a woman of faith is not someone who says, I used to do terrible things, but now I do all these things, and this is where my confidence is. He says, if someone goes on saying things like that and believing things like that, they don't have sound faith. Lloyd-Jones says, faith speaks in an entirely different manner, and it makes a man or a woman of God say, yes, I have sinned and continue to sin grievously. I live a life of sin, yet I know that I am a child of God because I am not resting on any righteousness of my own. My righteousness is in Jesus Christ, and God has put that to my account. He has credited that to my account. I have been reckoned righteous. Yes, I still sin. Yes, I live a grievous life of sin, but my confidence is not in my ability to clean myself up and do things differently. It's in the fact that I have placed my faith firmly and securely in the sufficiency of Jesus, and in that I rest. That is hearing with faith. That's the faith of Abraham. It's done. It's finished. Listen, you're in. If by the grace of God you have believed upon Jesus Christ as the sufficient sacrifice for your sin, that by grace you are complete before God because of Jesus, you're in. God's not keeping score. It's done. Jesus said it was finished. You're in. Now go enjoy it. Now go enjoy it. You're not righteous before God because you've managed to finally clean yourself up. You're not righteous before God because you have become whatever super Christian the books describe that you're supposed to be now. You're righteous before God because while you are still a sinner, His Son died in your place for your sin. And by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, God opened up the blindness of your sinful eyes. And you saw His glory in the face of His Son. Ray Ortland, the pastor in Nashville. I always say he's the pastor I want to be when I grow up. He said, the grace that God gave Abraham is the same grace that God would give you today.
You do nothing to prove that you're special. All you do is receive His mercy with the empty hands of faith. When you turn both from your sins and from your virtues, you turn to the promises of God. And when you do that, God does for every one of us what He did for Abraham so long ago. He says to us, your faith in me, it's all I'm looking for. And here's how it works from this point forward. Just let me be God to you. Friends, the gospel is the proclamation that God has done everything necessary for you and I to stand complete before Him. It's not the news that God has done His part and now you have to do yours. It's not that God meets sinners halfway. He took His steps, now you take your steps. No, it's that God has done everything necessary for you to not only be made right before His eyes, but to be transformed in the image and likeness of His Son and to be present with Him for all of eternity. And He's done it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When by faith you believe upon Him, you're in. Friends, the beauty of the Christian church, and I wish I knew who actually said this because I don't speak in tweet, but this is really good. The beauty of the Christian church is that the church is not meant to be a collection of dominant overachievers, always proving what we were able to do, always proving how good we are, driven by trying to perform and put ourselves before God. The beauty of the gospel-centered church is that we're not meant to be a group of dominant overachievers. We're meant by God to simply be a group of desperate receivers. If you catch that, it'll change things for you. We're not meant to be dominant overachievers. We're meant to be desperate receivers. And the gospel of God's grace is the announcement that all that good news is really true. It's really true. Through Christ, you are forever loved, forever vindicated, forever forgiven. God is not keeping score. He's not up there tallying the rights and the wrongs. He's not some kind of spiritual version of Santa Claus with a good list and the bad list, and you're trying to figure out where you are. You're justified, righteous, this morning when we have a chance to respond to God's word, when we get a chance to respond to his word by receiving communion, we're remembering the body of Jesus broken in our place for our sin. Remember the blood of Jesus shed for our sins. Remember Jesus saying, this is my body broken for you. This cup, this is my blood poured out for you. Every time you do this together, do what? Remember me. Remember me. Every time we have a chance to do this together, we're remembering that it's not just his life, his death, his resurrection that gets us in. It's his life and his resurrection that keep us in, that change us even now. We never, ever, ever have to move on from the simplicity of the gospel. And so this morning, as we prepare to respond, as we prepare to receive communion, we prepare to do it with a heart of celebration. 
As we receive communion, we're celebrating that Jesus is sufficient for our completeness before God. We don't need anything else. And then we sing. We make much of him with our mouths because we're not a group of overachievers trying to prove ourselves. We're a group of desperate receivers celebrating the fact that we get a love like this. That we get to receive a love like this because of what Jesus did in his life by his death and through his resurrection. So as we prepare this morning to to have a moment of reflection where we get a chance to deal with God and let him deal with us before we respond, let me ask you a question that's been asked of the church for centuries. You ready? What is your only hope in life and in death? I love that question because it gets right at the heart of the matter in the entire book of Galatians. Is Jesus sufficient for your hope in death? He's got me in, and I know I'll be safe for eternity, but here in this life, I've got to figure out something else. I've got to figure out what I need to do to keep myself in until I get to the point. What's your only hope in life and death? There's only one. There's just one. And here's the answer, that we're not our own, but we belong, body and soul, in life and in death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for you. And then we're going to give you a chance to reflect on God's Word and to to deal with God, to pray, to deal with Him, to let Him deal with you. And then as God's people, for those who have placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ as sufficient for their salvation, we're going to celebrate by receiving communion together this morning. So let me pray for us and then we'll prepare to respond. Father, we thank You that You and You alone have done for us everything required for us to know that we're loved by you, forgiven by you, that we stand right in your eyes for all of eternity. God, we're so easily distracted by so many different things. We ask this morning that you would do the miracle by your Holy Spirit in every heart here this morning that would draw us for the first time or the first time in a long time back to the simplicity of the gospel and the sufficiency of of the sacrifice of your Son in our place for our sins. Lord, let that be the thing that's most sweet. Let that be the thing that we are believing on today and tomorrow and the next day, not only for our eternity, but for our transformation today. Lord, we ask that you would do that for your glory in Jesus' name and for our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.